Hey everybody, my name is Walter Trout and you are right here listening to the Blues Podcast. Hi and welcome to the Blues Podcast. My name is Big Boy Bloater and this is a very strange uh, Blues Podcast this time. It's an odd episode but through the miracle of technology I'm able to say that I'm here virtually talking to guitar virtuoso and absolute legend Walter Trout. How you doing man? I'm okay man. You know I, I feel like I've been sitting in my house now for about nine years. Other than that I'm doing fine you know just it's, trying it's, to get through this. It's kind of a weird thing eh? It's uh, how, how are you coping with the whole lockdown thing at the moment? Um, you know the the real sort of tragedy of the whole thing to me other than you know the illness and people dying and everything but for musicians and for myself and my band and my friends all the work is gone you know i had an amazing um tour you know summer of touring booked ahead of me probably my best summer of touring with great shows and big big festivals and it's all gone and um the guys in my band are, are struggling and, and all the musicians I know are, are struggling right now and um so I, you know I'm kind of lucky in that if I have to be stuck at home here I, I'm with my wife and and you know a couple of our boys are here and it's not like I, I'm alone and lonely but um, and I'm in Southern California. It's 75 degrees out, and it's beautiful. And but still, um, I, I miss so deeply playing for people, playing my guitar, and looking them in the eye. I'm a guy who I thrive on playing live, um, and and to get on that stage and come out and play for somebody and look them in the eye. I'm I'm going to lose it here, but. I really miss that badly. I know exactly what you mean. It's going on stage and feeding off that energy of the audience, isn't it? It's uh, you can have a you know you could be having a real down day, but when you get on the stage and the audience are there, kind of right yeah. behind you, it just energizes you, doesn't it? And that's it. And you're communicating with them, and and you can look down and see that that what you're doing is affecting them, and you're bringing some joy into their life, you know. And and um, one of the things that I love about what I do is is meeting them afterwards going to the merch booth and meeting the fans and shaking their hands and talking to them and hearing their stories and um, I, I love that interaction with with people I, I'm a guy that really kind of thrives on that stuff so that's that's a big hole in my life right now. I mean, I, I sit and I practice my guitar. I'm trying to keep my chops up, but um, it's not the same, you know. It's, it's not the same as having the adrenaline of being on stage and the, and the danger. Or if, you, if you, you screw up at home, you just start again, right? It doesn't matter. Nobody's watching. There's yeah. no danger there, right? No, no. And, and that's also the thing is that... Um, one of the really exciting parts about being a touring musician and and you'll you'll understand this is you have you know when you're on tour your next gig could be the best gig you've ever done or it could be the worst gig you've ever done and you never know until you walk out on that stage and start playing there's so many variables um you know every night so even if you have a bad gig one night, like when I have a bad gig and I feel uninspired and I feel like I'm just going through the motions, I feel incredibly guilty. And I go to my hotel room and I, I look in the mirror and I go, you know, you let them down. They, they paid to come see you and you didn't do it. Um, so then the next night can be the, the greatest gig you've ever had. You, you can get so inspired that, you feel like you're levitating and the audience goes there with you. And when that happens, there is this mutual feeling of, of just magic, you know? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah I know uh, you we'll come back to talking about 
live gigs and everything going on uh, in a little while. But uh, for now, I want to go right, right, way back, if we can, right to the very, very start, uh, back in your, your early years in, in New Jersey. Do you remember getting your first guitar? I do. Um, I started taking trumpet lessons when I was five years old, and I was really going to be a jazz trumpet player. Really? And that's what I was heavy into, man. Um, for my 10th birthday, my hip mother uh, arranged it that I spent the afternoon with Duke Ellington and his orchestra. Wow. I sat in the dressing room in a theater with those guys for hours, and I got a trumpet lesson from the incredible Cat Anderson, who was the guy in the orchestra who played all the high notes, and he tried to teach me the embouchure, and I sat on this white couch with Duke Ellington and talked to him, and um, Tony Bennett was there. My mom was off trying to, you know, hit on Tony Bennett, but <laughs> I was just interested in the musicians, you know. So I was really into that stuff. And then one day, my, my older brother, I, I talk about him a lot in interviews, um, but he knew I loved music and my parents loved music. And my brother brought home an album and said, I know this is not what you're into, but I want you to give this guy a listen. It's, there's something here that I have not heard before. This was 1961 or 62. And it was the first album by Bob Dylan. And it was so different than anything I had ever heard. And there was something in those songs and that voice. Um, the guy was 20 years old and he sounded like he was 85 and had been traveling in, in boxcars for 50 years, you know. Um, and I was just taken with that, that music, the simplicity of it, but the, the potency and, and the um, depth that he could express with the simple little three chords in the lyrics. And um, I, I really started listening to that album all the time. And I was 10 years old. And then one day my brother again came home and said, man, I got you an acoustic guitar. It was a shitty guitar. It had nylon strings and high action. But he said, here you go. And um, I bought a Mel Bay chord book. And I started teaching myself the guitar, and I became a, a folk singer. I was still playing the trumpet, but um, I got pretty good at, I could go to parties and sing Blowing in the Wind and, you know, stuff like that. And um, then on the whole world in America changed on February the 9th, 1964, at 8 o'clock Philadelphia time when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. And I was 13. And here were these four guys that played as if they, it was one person. Um, I, I can't overstate the impact that had on kids my age in America. The world was different the next day, and it never went back to what it had been. So then, hey, I got to get an electric guitar, you know. And um, I started jamming with my buddies and playing in, in the basements and trying to learn, you know, uh, I want to hold your hand and stuff like that. And then a year later in 1965, once again, my older brother came home and said, I know you like the guitar and you're really into the guitar now. Sit down, I'm going to play you something. And it was the first Paul Butterfield album wow, with wow. Mike Bloomfield. And it had, you know, Born in Chicago and blues with a feeling and stuff and in 1965 when you were used to hearing George Harrison and Keith Richards playing their guitar solos and then here comes Mike Bloomfield and he's playing it like the speed of light with all this passion and fire but he's playing blues but he's playing it like like this wild untamed animal you know um as soon as I heard that I said to my brother, there it is, that's what I want to do. So I was, at that point, I was 14, and I, I went to my mother and said, I'm going to be a blues guitar player, and I never looked back. <laughs> what, what, do you remember what your mother said to that when you said you're going to be a blues guitar player? <laughs> she just said, that's nice, Walter. That's good. But a couple <laughs> of years later. Or, uh, she thought it would just be a passing fad kind of thing. Well, 
I, I have to say, a lot of my friends who are musicians will tell you that when they were kids, their parents would say, no, you need to have a real job and you need something to fall back on and you need to do this. That's just a pipe dream. My mother always said to me, even around the time I was 15 or 16, she would say, I hear you playing in the bedroom. I hear you sitting in the living room and I think you can do it. But if that's what you want to do, you need to work hard at it. And if, if the guy down the street is practicing four hours a day, you better practice six hours a day because the guy who works harder at it is going to go further. And um, she, she, never, she never gave me the go get a real job thing. Either did my father. Um, so I, I was very lucky in that, that respect, you know. Yeah, it's it's not many musicians that can say that their parents were completely behind them when they when they turned up and said, "Hey, guys, I'm going to be a musician and you know grow my hair long." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure they it worried them like, "God, what's going to become of this kid?" And I remember saying to them, "Look, I love doing this so much that if I turn fifty, She'd go, well, what if you don't make it, you know? And I'd say, well, if I turn 50 years old and I'm still playing down at the corner bar for 10 drunk guys, at least I'll be playing. I'll be doing what I love doing. And I'm, I'm not worrying about making a bunch of money. I'm not trying to be a pop star here. I want to play music on my guitar. And um, I remember being 50. Um, <laughs> Thirty fifty, and I, I was out on tour with my band, and we played in this little, little shithole blues club out in Mid America, and uh, about six people showed up, and I thought, well, God's calling in the chips here on that that quote, you know, but um, I told her, I, you know, I I want to do what I love doing, and and I'm not out to just spend my life chasing, making money. These guys that work um, all their life and they get two paid, paid vacation weeks and then they go on a vacation and then when they turn 65 over here, they retire and they go fishing and they uh, take a trip to Switzerland or something. I, I was not interested in doing something just because I want to make money. I, I wanted to to chase my passion and my love and um i it, it's funny when our, our oldest son was in the second grade his teacher asked the class i want you all to write a sentence of what you consider success and he wrote doing what you love so you know um my whole family's kind of kind of focused on that I think that's a great lesson to teach your kids, isn't it? That's a, that's a fantastic thing. If you can pass that on to your children, I think you've, uh, yeah, you've definitely been a success, that's for sure. Well, you know, um, I, I feel like I, I have been a success as a musician. I just finished my 29th album under my own name, you know, and, um, but e even if I hadn't, I would still be doing this. If I was still playing down at the bar, I'd still be doing it, you know, sleeping on. Well, I'm glad I don't have to sleep on my buddy's couch. I went for many years of that, that stuff, you know. I bet your buddy's glad about that as well. Yeah, I bet he is. <laughs> That's good answer there. So um, you're like, you're a teenager. You've got yourself an electric guitar. You're doing blues jams, kind of, you know, it's all kind of, everything seems to be exciting and all that. What was the first band you actually got into as a, like, a, right, you know, I'm in a band now. We're going to, we're like a gang. We're going to take over the world. Okay. I, I was in high school and in, in, I went into the ninth grade. I started in a new school in the ninth grade, a school where my mother got the job as the librarian. She was on the faculty. And um, I met a fellow there. I still, um, I talk about him a lot. His name is Jack Jacket. And he, he, it was like meeting Paul McCartney. He could play every instrument. You could give him some weird instrument 
that he'd never seen. He'd go off into a room for a half an hour and come back out playing the thing. He wrote songs. He played great. He sang great, you know, and um, he really started showing me a lot of stuff on the guitar. Um, and he and I, we started um, having little bands all through high school and maybe maybe playing at Battle of the Bands and doing that kind of stuff. And as soon as he got, we got out of that school, as soon as we graduated from 12th grade, he went to um, college, a local college, and majored in music. And he got all these music majors and started a band. And I became the guitar player. And we, we were a big group. We had a big horn line. So we were working in clubs. And we were doing Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And we were doing Chicago Transit Authority. And we were doing uh, stacks, you know, Otis Redding tunes, a lot of stack stuff, and we were doing Motown stuff. And every once in a while, um, I'd get to do a Muddy Waters song, you know. But it was it was playing music in in the club circuit on the East Coast, which is a, a really back then was a thriving circuit of nightclubs and we became very popular and we worked all the time. So right out of high school, I was in a working band. We weren't really a blues band, but I was playing rock and roll and R and B and I was making a living and it was great, you know? And, um, um, he kind of ended up having to get a day job. He got married and, I ended up sort of with the band and I, I fired the horn line and it became a four piece band just like I have now. And we started doing a lot of my songs. And as soon as that happened, we couldn't get a gig. Nobody wanted to hear us, you know, um, as long as we were doing, uh, try a little tenderness or we were doing, uh, evil ways, or we were doing brown sugar, or we were doing, does anybody really know what time it is? we were working all the time. But as soon as it was Walter's front in the band and he's writing all the songs, it was like, we don't want to hear this shit. But um, so I, that lasted for a little while. And, and I ended up um, just moving to California one day, um, figuring that New Jersey at that point was a dead end. So to be perfectly honest, I had a Volkswagen Beetle. Um, I put, I had a Gibson 335, a Fender Super Reverb, a Martin D28, a mandolin, a trumpet, all my clothes, a half a pound of marijuana, and 30 hits of LSD and $150, and I drove across the country. I hallucinated my way to California. <laughs> it's, it's amazing that you actually got there. Well, you know, <laughs> it took a while, you know. <laughs> I took my time, you know, but, um, <laughs> had you actually set out for, for California or was that just where you ended up and you kind of run no, out? And I, I set out for California. I had some friends that lived in Costa Mesa and I had come and visited them for a week and I had seen that there was a great club scene in LA and Orange County. And, and I went back to my band and said, if we all move to California, we can work our band could could work in Los Angeles. And they all said, yeah, let's go. And one by one, they dropped out till I said, well, if you guys aren't going, I'm going to go on my own. And I took off. And uh, they all figured I'd be, I'd drive 50 miles and turn around, but I didn't. I, uh, I got out here. I can tell you a real quick little story. I arrived in Costa Mesa on Halloween, 1974. I had just driven 3,000 miles. I had taken 11 days. I was really kind of mentally out of my mind at this point from, you know, weed and acid. And they said, we're going to a Halloween party. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. You know, I just got here. I just drove 3,000 miles. They said, you need a costume. I said, I don't have a costume. Well, anyway, this guy says, I have a full body gorilla suit. You want that? I said, yeah, give me the gorilla suit. So I put on the full gorilla suit with the head and the whole thing. I gave everybody of my friends, I gave them all a hit of LSD. 
We went to the party. I started having really the ultimate bum trip. Like, my God, I got to go back to New Jersey. What am I doing here? This is horrible. I don't know anybody. Um, and I was freaking out. And I walked out of the party and I started walking down the street. And then I realized I was completely lost. I was in a new town. I couldn't find the party. I couldn't find the house we lived in. I was lost wandering the streets of Costa Mesa, peeking on LSD, dressed as a gorilla. And um, I wandered into a little cafe. I sat down at the counter. I took my gorilla head off. I stuck it on the counter. A waitress came over and said, can I help you? And I just went, <laughs> and I started sobbing and I had a nervous breakdown. Well, she she took care of me and she got me a cup of coffee and I explained the whole thing to her. And she said, do you know the name of the street their house is on? I said, yeah, College Avenue. So she drew me a little map and I finally ended up back at the house. Well, four years later, I was in the happening band in Orange County. I was the lead player of the happening group, you know, the big popular group. There's a girl there and I'm looking at her and she's looking at me and where do I know you from? And she looks at me she goes, Oh my God, you're the gorilla. It was the waitress. And she became a fan of the band. But anyway, I don't know why I told you that, but that was my first night in California. I was lost on acid, dressed as an ape, you know? That's, that's a great story. I mean, that's, there's a song right there, surely. <laughs> well, I don't know. You could put that in a movie and people would go, yeah, this, is, this doesn't happen, but that's a true story. <laughs> I should have known right then it was going to be a tumultuous experience out here, you know? Yeah, but glad you did it though, right? <laughs> <laughs> so th those early days, uh, you, you started working with some pretty big names. Uh, you know, I was reading earlier on, you know, you were playing with uh, people like John Lee Hooker, Big Mama Thornton. I bet that was a, quite an education <laughs> on fire. Here's how that happened. Um, like I said, that four years after I got out here, I was playing and I was in the happening club band of Orange County. We were called Midnight Angel and we had Danny Timms on piano who went on to play with Paul Simon and Bonnie Raitt. And, you know, I mean, we, it was a great band. We had five lead singers, so we had five part harmonies and um, it was an awesome band. And we were the house band at this beautiful club in Costa Mesa that was packed every night. But we were doing Eagles and Beatles and Stones, and we were doing dance music for people to come in every night and dance and rock out. Leonard Skinner and stuff like that. Whatever was happening, we did a lot of Little Feet. Um, but this buddy of mine said, you know, once in a while I would play like a Muddy Waters song or I do Born in Chicago or something, but we were basically a club band. And this friend of mine named Brant Bindley, who I still know, dear friend, said to me, hey, Walter, I was up on the Redondo Beach Pier last Sunday and there's a little club there and there's these older black fellows and they just play stone blues. And I told him, I have a guitar player friend, and could I bring him in? And this, he goes, this keyboard player said, yeah, bring him. So Sunday came around, and we went up to the Redondo Beach Pier, and my friend said, this is Walter. You told me he could sit in, and the keyboard player went, no, we don't know. And my friend went off. Hey, we drove an hour and a half, and you told me he could play, so keyboard guy, the B3 guy goes, yeah, okay, let him play a song. I played a song. He said, oh, well, play another song. I played another song. He said, why don't you stay up for the set? I stayed up for the set, and he immediately said, hey, you want to join the band? <laughs> and, well, it was Deacon Jones and Finest Tasby, and it was the Coast to Coast Blues Band, who were John Lee Hooker's backup band. And uh, they were just, they had a Sunday afternoon gig on the pier um, without John Lee Hooker, but it was his band. And suddenly with these guys, you know, Finest went on to be the lead singer of, of the Manish Boys. 
And uh, Deacon Jones had, had been with Freddie King for 13 years, and he'd been, he was John Lee Hooker's band director. And those were the guys I just fell in with, and they adopted me and mentored me. And I was the only uh, vanilla fella in the band, and I was the only guy under, you know, 50 years old. I was like 26 or something like that. And, um, you know, with those guys... I played with John Lee Hooker and Big Mama Thornton and Percy Mayfield and Bo Diddley and Lowell Folsom and Pee Wee Creighton and Eddie Cleanhead Vincent and O.V. Wright and Joe Tex. And um, I can't remember them all. Um, we were the band to, when guys would come to L.A., these blues dudes, the real blues guys, they would come there and they would just hire that band to back them up. and. Um, Deacon and Finus, like I say, they mentored me and they, that was an education. I played with those guys for two years. And um, most nights I was the only white guy in the place. And it was an incredible education. And it was some of the most fun I have ever had in the music business. Um, I just had a, a blast with those guys, man. I, I, it was it was wild and it was crazy and it was the real thing and i was in seven heaven man playing with those dudes i was like this is it man this is what i've been hoping for all my life you know was there was there a favorite at that time that you really look back and think well that was you know god that was the gig that really you know meant so much to me um i did a lot of gigs with those guys and everyone was a little different a lot of it was just nightclubs in Watts or in Compton, you know, it was the hood. And, um, but probably um, some of the shows I did with John Lee Hooker were a lot of fun. Now you have to understand that at that point in like 1978, the blues was at a low point, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, Saturday night fever was out and everything was disco music and, you would go play with John Lee Hooker, this icon, and you'd be in a little club and play to 50 people, you know. Um, it, it was not like big shows or anything. Big Mama Thornton would put the hat out for tips, you know. But, but still, it was um, just an amazing experience. Um, it was something I, I treasure in my memories as just being – a glorious kind of shining moment of my life. <laughs> and um, just on the, uh, on the flip side of that question, come on, who was the worst one? Do you remember? Do you remember ever thinking, oh man, I never want to play with this person ever again. I mean, I played with a lot of guys, my heroes, and they always say, don't meet your heroes. Pretty much most of them have been fantastic, but there's been a couple and I thought, I just can't ever listen to your records again now after that experience. Do you ever get that at all? That happened to me later when I was with John Mayall, when I was with Canned Heat. Yeah. And I, I don't want to badmouth the guy. I mean, but if you read my book, it's in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a book out um, written by British journalist Henry Yates. It's a biography of me, and I tell the story. I had some really bad experiences with Albert King, and I can't listen to him anymore. Right, yeah. I can't stand I can't stand if he comes on the radio, I change the station. I got rid of all his records. I don't have his music and I don't want to know about the man. So that Absolutely. one, as far as the worst, yeah, that, that, that one's, but I don't want to bad mouth the guy. He's an icon. He made great music, but I, I wish I hadn't have met him. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a couple of experiences like that, but hey, you just got to move on, right? Just got to move on. Think yeah. about the good now, times. There's a couple that I can't say were bad guys, but they were weird. Um, I literally backed up Van Morrison in Carnegie Hall, but we were not allowed to rehearse with him. Right. Yeah. So I am in, in Carnegie Hall playing behind Van Morrison and we haven't rehearsed. And he never said a word to the band. We came out one side. He came out the other. He turned around and called a song. And you better know the song. 
Um, and then he would do stuff like he turned around at one point. He had it was the Lead Belly Festival, which I also did at Royal Albert Hall, right? But um, Van Morrison turned around. He had a twelve string on because we're doing Lead Belly. Um, turned around at one point and he yelled "Boogie in G," and and he counted to four. And um, I gotta say, he gave me a couple of solos, and at the end of the solos, he smiled. But then at the end of the set, he walked off. We walked off the other end, and I'm like, God, I, I just played a set with Van Morrison. I never even, we never even said hello, you know. So I can't say if he's a bad guy or a good guy. I have no idea, but I can say I played at Carnegie Hall and I backed up Van Morrison, you know, and that, that's a big memory for me. Yeah, yeah. That's a great one. Actually, funny enough, I got a friend who uh, who did uh, was supposed to be doing a gig with Van Morrison, and uh, they went. They got a rehearsal. They got a rehearsal, and they did a you know rehearsal. And the whole time, Van wouldn't look him in the eye. Was, they weren't look, allowed to look him in the eye or anything. They weren't allowed to. They were over one side of the room, and Van was over the other side yeah. of the room. And they played a few songs, and then he just walked off into the office for about ten minutes. He came back out, walked out the door, and his manager came out and said. Yeah, Van says you're all sacked. <laughs> and that was it. They never got to do the gig. Ah, <laughs> oh, but there you go. Yeah, that's oh, the role, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah. So um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Canned Heat and and uh, and John Mayer. How did you? I mean, how did that come about with those guys? Okay, um, with Deacon and Finus. Um, I started playing with some other fellas also when I was in Deacon's band, right? And there was an old piano player. You you might, being the blues aficionado, you might remember a fella named J.D. Nicholson. You can look him up. He right. was a piano player from Chicago. He had made records back in the late 40s and early 50s. You can find his records on YouTube, J.D. Nicholson. But he was like 80 years old, and he was the keyboard player. And we were called J.D. Nicholson and the Soul Benders. And we had the Tuesday night house gig at a legendary club called the Lighthouse in Hermosa Beats. It's a famous jazz club. And we played there every Tuesday night for, for months. And uh, one night... Um, and, and J.D. used to let me front the band. He'd say, he'd go, hey, well, come on, sing one. And he'd let me sing, you know. He'd put me out in front. And it was, it, he was an awesome, awesome guy. And um, one night, some really crusty-looking biker guys came in and were listening to me play. And um, the next week, they came in again, and they came up to me and said, uh, hey, we're uh, canned heat. And um, we're, it was actually Canned Heat's management and two of the guys from the band. And the management at the time, how can I put this? They were members of a very well-known motorcycle club that shall remain nameless. Yeah. I have been instructed not to name the club in any of my dealings. Um, but you can imagine, very well-known club. They were managing the band and they said, uh, we have a tour of Australia coming up and Henry Vestine is drinking too much. So um, would you come do the tour with us? And I was like, yeah, sure. So um, they said, we're going to break, because Bob Height had just died. The bear had just, yeah. just passed away. And, and the guy said, we're going to break up because Bob Height's dead, but we're committed to do this last tour. We have to do the tour, and we don't want to take Henry. So it's one tour, but do you want to do it? So I said, yeah, let's go. I went off to Australia with Canned Heat. And um, at the end of the tour, they were all like, this band's really good. Let's keep going. And that turned into a four-and-a-half-year thing. But So I was out touring the world with them and making records. But we got a gig in 1982. Um, Mr. Mayall had put together the original Blues Breakers. He put them back together. It was Mick Taylor, John McVie, and Colin Allen. And um, we were scheduled to open for them for three shows 
up in Northern California. It was like Santa Cruz, San Jose, and San Francisco, or Berkeley, or something. And um, we went up and and opened for them. And and after the show, John just walked up to me and he said, "Man, I love the way you play." And and he and I hung out that night and we hit it off. We immediately became friends. He was still drinking at the time, so we got shit face roaring drunk together and we talked about music and um he said to me at the end of the three nights he said um i'm going off and doing a, a west coast tour with these guys is can't he working and i said no we only have these three shows and then we don't have anything for a couple of months and he said to me i'd like to hear you play rhythm for Mick Taylor, would you like to come out and do the shows? So there I was touring the West Coast with Mick Taylor, McVie, and Colin Allen, and John Mayall as a member of the original Blues Breakers, which blew my mind because half the shit I knew to play on the guitar, I learned off the Beano album and the Crusade album and the stuff he did with Peter Green, right? I mean, I studied those records. I, I can play you those solos note for note, you know. That's how you learn, right? When you're a kid and you're trying to learn, you you learn what your heroes are doing and then you try to take it somewhere else. But um, So I did a, a bunch of gigs with them and, and I had an awesome time. Um, but then, um, you know, he said, well, we're going to go off to Germany or something, so I'm not going to take you. And then I went back with Canned Heat. And... Um, about a year later, John called up the management of Canned Heat and said, I've gotten rid of the original Blues Breakers. I'd like to do a tour and have Canned Heat as my backing band. So then we went out and toured for a year as Canned Heat with John Mayall. And we'd do an hour set of Canned Heat, and then we'd bring him up and we'd do an hour of John Mayall. And that was great fun. And... um after that, that was in like probably 83 or 84. And near the end of 84, he called me and said, um, I'm going to put a brand new Blues Breakers together. And would you come be the guitar player? And of course, if John Mayall calls you and asks you to play guitar in his band, you, you fall on your knees and weep for a while. And then you thank God that you're alive, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you, I mean, you are you are clean and sober now these days, aren't you? But back then, it was it was pretty heavy going sometimes, right? It was heavy going. Yeah, I got sober <laughs> on July the ninth, nineteen eighty seven. If you read um, the book that Henry Yates wrote about me, John wrote the the preface, and uh, he says in there that he and I bonded over our love of alcohol, and uh, he had a <laughs> here's a story for you he had a bottle that he had made a label for called chateau hibiscus and at the end of the night in the clubs when they closed the door he and i would walk through the clubs and we would take the half finished drinks and we would pour them into the wine bottle we'd shake it up and we'd cap it and then we'd let it age overnight and the next day in the van, we'd sit in the back seat and we'd uncap it. And we'd each have our wine glass and we'd be like, it's a wonderful bouquet. It's, it's kind of a mix of Pernod and Budweiser, you know. And that was Chateau Hibiscus and nobody else in the band would drink it. But I would sit there with him and we'd finish off those bottles. And um, yeah, he was, uh, that guy's a trip, man. That guy is one of the more unique people I've ever known. And I... I love him like a father. That, that is dedication to drinking, isn't it? That really is. I mean, you've got to be <laughs> dedicated to go that far. <laughs> hey, well, let me tell you, here's a good one. The first night of the gig um, where Canned Heat opened for the Blues Breakers, I was walking back to the hotel, and there was Mick Taylor and John McVie sitting outside on the steps. I hadn't met them yet. This was the first show, right? And I, and I walked up and I said, hey, I'm Walter, I'm in Canned Heat, how you doing? I looked down, and this is an honest to God true story. They had a bottle of orange juice, 
they had a bottle of rubbing alcohol and they were mixing drinks. And I said, why are you drinking rubbing alcohol? And John McVie said, 89 cents a bottle. Now rumors was out, right? The guy's a millionaire, but it's 89 cents a bottle. And um, anyway, I said, you know, guys, I have a big fifth of Smirnoff up in my room. You want to drink some real stuff. So we went up to my room. Um, some guys from Canned Heat came over, and we had a party with my bottle of Smirnoff. John McVie passed out on the floor, unconscious. And we had tapes playing. I had a cassette player, and we were listening to blues. John McVie was snoring. He was out, man. And time to change the tape. I went over and said, what would, does anybody want to hear? And John McVie's head popped up off the floor, his eyes opened, and he said, please, no Stevie Nicks. And his head went back down on the floor. That's another true story. Um, <laughs> I had a great time with those guys. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sober since 1987 now, uh, I mean, which is absolutely a fantastic achievement. It's brilliant. Well done. Uh, you know, that's, that's just something to really be proud of. Is it tough being around uh, drinkers and, and people these days doing that kind of stuff? Um, I had to, as it's the cliche, but it's the truth. I had to hit the bottom, you know. Um, I had to really decide I, I have to do this. And, and I tried it a couple of times and kept relapsing. But then I was in East Berlin, Germany with the Blues Breakers and um, – Basically, Carlos Santana did like a three-day intervention on me in a hotel. Um, he came to the, you know, we were all in the same hotel in East Germany. In East Berlin, it was communist. And um, he came to the gig and he came up to me afterwards and he said, what are you doing? What the hell's with you? And I, I you know, I'm shit-faced drunk and I thought I'd played great. I'll just kick that, you know, we're fucking... And uh, he was like, he said, you've been given a gift. You've been given a gift for music and you are in a famous band and you are standing that guitar slot in the Blues Breakers. There are a hundred thousand guitar players in the world that would give anything to be in that slot. And you've been given a gift of music and you're so drunk on stage. And this is what he did. He said, you're doing this to where you got the gift. And he pointed up at the sky and he gave me a book and said, go up and read this book and come back and we'll talk. And I read the book and it was um, about figuring out that everybody has something they're good at. Everybody has some sort of gift they've been given. Um, everybody has some ability that they have that they can do better than other things. And you need to find out what it is and you need to develop it and nurture it and do your best to share it with the world. And by doing that, you are doing your part to make the world a little bit better place. And um, you need to be serious about sharing your gift and about utilizing it and about using it to help the world. Whatever it is, maybe you're a good car mechanic. If that's what you are, be the best damn car mechanic you can be, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then I came downstairs the next day, I stayed up and read the whole book. And then he and I basically hung out in that hotel and we talked for two days. And, um, I went to Mr. Mayo and I said, you will never see me high again. And, and I was done. Wow. That's impressive. By that, and by that time, you know, John was sober. Um, after that Chateau Hibiscus tour, um, John got That's sober. That's enough to put anyone off, right? <laughs> <laughs> but John got sober, you know, the, most of the time when I was in his band, the actual Blues Breakers, he was sober, very serious about being sober. And um, so God bless the man. He put up with me for a good amount of years of my drinking and my drugging and my philandering. And um, he always believed in me. and. He put up with behavior for me that was just horrific when I look back at it. And 
Um, every time I'm with him, we, we kind of discuss it. And I always end up saying, I still can't figure out why you kept me in the band with some of my shenanigans and the way I was. And he always says, well, Walter, there was a certain humor to it. <laughs> but then he will tell me, he'll say, but he goes, no matter how high you got, you always were able to play. He said, if you got to the point where you could not play my music, I would have canned you immediately. But you never got that bad. You always played. And um, but so he put up with a lot. Uh, I want to talk uh, a little bit about Marie, if that's all right. Uh, your wife, uh, yeah. she manages you. Uh, you guys met in Denmark, right? Back in the, in the beginning of the 90s. Do you remember meeting up? Oh, I certainly do. I certainly do. It was uh, September 29th, 1990. I was in Denmark recording the album, my second album, Prisoner of a Dream. And uh, I was in Copenhagen and we had a gig on the weekend in a little town called Holstebro, Denmark. It was the Holstebro Music Festival and it was in a big hall. There was about 2,000 people. And uh, I was up on the stage playing. And uh, at the very back of the hall, through all these people, I could see this beautiful blonde. And um, there was like almost like this light shining on her. It was very strange. And across the crowd, we were vibing like this. And she started moving toward the stage. And the, I'm not, this is the truth. The crowd kind of parted like the Red Sea. And she came up and stood before the stage. And, I was staring at her and she was staring at me and and um, I fell over the microphone. I couldn't stop looking and um, I was waving. I got to meet you, you know, and she'd go, yeah, I know. And anyway, we um, we went out after the gig and we walked around this little Danish town, this old, beautiful Danish town that's a thousand years old and walked the cobblestone streets and talked. And uh, after about 45 minutes, um, I said to her, you're going to move to America. We're going to get married. We're going to have children and we're going to get old together. And she said, what? You're out of your mind. I, we only met 45 minutes earlier. And I said, and you don't have any say in this because this is meant to happen. This is just the way it is. You might as well just agree. And uh, a week later, she agreed, and she had her own advertising agency. She closed up the agency and moved to the States. You want to hear her version of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Marie. So maybe uh, you want to give your version of the night we met, because I know that sounds insane, but that's exactly what happened. We want to hear your version now, Marie. We, we, we've heard Walter's version, and it was, it, was, it was dramatic and romantic and, and all sorts, but what gives the truth now? <laughs> what really happened? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was at this concert that I wasn't planning on going to. I was super tired. I had my own... Um, business, advertising sales business, and it was a Friday, no, it was actually a weekend night. I'd worked all all day, Saturday, and uh, I a friend convinces me to go on a train to this town that's like 100 miles from, 80 miles from where I live, and it was just like, I don't want to go, but I really want to hear this band, and I get in the room, super tired, um, and there's this music and I'm just like, holy crap, that's cool. Maybe it's a good thing I went. And it wasn't very long through the concert before our eyes met. And, uh, that was really strange. You know, I'm not, I was not a groupie. That was that sort of my thing, but there was this definite energy going on. Uh, holy crap. And Walter started acting rather idiotic. Me? On stage. It was like embarrassing. I'm sorry, but that was like, <laughs> holy crap. And everybody looking at me and, um, you know, because he's just making signs to me like, we got to meet and, and that kind of thing. And um, 
after the show, we actually did um, hook up. I, I managed to, I couldn't get backstage. There was a big beefy security guard. He wouldn't let me backstage because Walter kept saying and signaling, we got to meet, you got to come backstage, you know, and I'm like, I get it, I get it. Um, so Walter waited in the wings and as I'm walking back out through the, the room, he, I hear this voice, hello, we have to talk. And, um, you know, we sat down at a table in the hall and, uh, the guy, I mean, we just had an instant connection. It was unbelievable. It, it didn't take more than, um, a, a 35, 40 minutes of us being together before he told me we were going to get married and have kids. So see, true story. It's like you, know, you guys have rehearsed this, like you know, it's like you worked it out beforehand. It's uh, it's uncanny. I'm sorry, this happened, and I told him you're you're out of your mind. You know, you you gotta be crazy that it doesn't work like this. And who do you think I am to to buy into this kind of crap? You know, um, that's not how things work. You know, but he's like, well, you have no say in this. This is going to happen, which really annoyed me. Don't talk to me like that. You know. <laughs> But uh, here we are. I knew. Marie is your, your manager there now these days as well, isn't she? How's that working out for you? Well, let me tell you, when Marie took over as my manager <laughs> 28 years ago, um, we were so broke that I was pawning my Martin guitar to pay the rent. We did not have a reliable automobile because we couldn't afford it. I had these big-time managers in los angeles and they were stealing everything everything um i mean the the extent to which they ripped me off is is incredible and i didn't she kept telling me you're getting ripped off and i'm like no these guys are my friends i'm i just i go do a tour and i go do a tour and i pay the band and i pay the crew and i pay the airplanes and I pay the hotels, and when I'm done, there's nothing left. So I would do a 10-week tour, and I'd come home with $1,500 at the end of 10 weeks. Yep. And she's like, no, you're getting ripped off. Well, finally, unbeknownst to me, I did that 10-week tour with the $1,500 at the end. That's making a total of $150 in a week for me. And at the time, I had the number one album in Europe which was prisoner of a dream. And uh, she got the books from our London agent who booked the thing. And then she took the books from my management, from my manager, and she sat down and she found a discrepancy of like a insane amount of money. I don't want to go into figures, but it was in the tens, tens, tens of thousands of dollars in discrepancy missing. She sat me down and she proved it. She said, okay, I've been telling you this all along. Check this shit out. She proved it. Call up my manager, said, hey man, come on over. Let's talk about the future. We hit, we hit a video camera in the bookshelf. She put out the two books and said, well, hey, look at this. There's a whole, whole, more money than most people make in a year missing on one tour. And he just said, you got me, you caught me. I have your money. I took it. I live legally. I live in Mexico. All your money is in a bank in Mexico. If you want to get it back, you're going to have to sue me in Mexico and he walked out the door and that's when she took over wow <laughs> yeah that and he was one of my best friends was i eh? so that, that was the good old days of rock and roll right that's uh... yeah but she, <laughs> things are much she better now that. right so she she discovered that and then she took over and since then and the first thing she did was okay when you tour we're going to cut down these expenses you know, we're going to take a look at the expenses. How much do you need to spend here? How much do you need to spend there? How can we save some money here? And uh, she actually made it quite lucrative for me to actually be a musician, you know? Surely not. Oh, so, yeah, she's killing <laughs> it, man. And a lot of my friends, some of whom are a couple of whom are very well known. I think you play their records. 
have called her up and asked her to manage them. And she says, I own, I'm a one artist manager. You 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 a lot of work, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be on the phone soon as well. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's get back to uh, to to these days, really. I mean, you know, you're 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 playing. You were planning a tour. Obviously, things are going to be put on hold for a bit, right? I mean, but um, 29 albums under your own name. I mean, that's an, an astonishing amount. I hear you get a medal for 30. So I mean, you know, that's something to aim for, but. Do you ever see a time when you might think, Joe, you know what, enough is enough. I'm going to hang up the guitar. I'm going to retire. Do you ever see that happening? No. I'm doing what I love, man. You know, why would I, when you're doing what you love and what nourishes you and sustains you in your soul and in your heart, why would you stop doing that? I take my inspiration from guys like John Lee Hooker, who was 85 and did a gig two days before he died. And Mr. Mayall, who's 86, and who um, at the end of the year, I'm supposed to go out and do a tour of America on a double bill with Mr. Mayall, you know, and he's 86, man. And he's still, um, you know, he was very, very sick a year ago, and he almost died twice, which a lot of people don't know. But right after he got out of the hospital, after he had come through it, he called me up and I said, so John, man, you made it through and you're home now. How are you doing? His first words, I'm bored. I can't wait to get back to work. And he went in the studio and recorded an album. You know, he said, I'm not well, I'm not, I'm not well enough that I can go tour, but I can go down the street into the studio and make a record. And that's what he did. And I, I take inspiration from those guys. I, I want to be an artist. And I want to be an artist who is honest in what I present to people. This is me. Um, and that's, that's the essence of my life. And um, that's just who I am. And, and I don't have to, you know, hit pop stardom. And I don't have to uh, any of that shit. I... I get up every morning, especially after, you know, six years ago, I was dead and I had a liver transplant and I came through it. So I, I get up every morning. The first thing I think to myself is, what, what am I grateful for today? You know, I'm going to lose it here, but I'm, I have a career. I have a wife. I have children. I have a nice house. I have, and I do it all by creating whatever I can create and presenting it to people and having them enjoy it and send me a message and shake my hand and say, your music means something to me. What else do you want in life? You know? Absolutely. You're a very lucky man. Walter. So you're a very lucky man. Indeed. Um, I've got a couple of fan questions for you. If that's cool. Uh, Ron Platt says, uh, are you going to do another book for the rest of the story? Well, it's funny. You know, I actually spoke on the phone with Henry Yates um, just about a week ago because for the the release of my new album, he's doing the press release. He's doing the bio. that, and, I, and he's the guy who wrote the biography of me. Well, that biography ends when I have liver disease and they don't think I'm going to live. And it ends like, we don't know if this guy's going to survive this, but he's had a pretty good run. But, and that's where the book ends. And I was saying, him, <laughs> I was telling him, wouldn't it be great if we could do another chapter? Yeah, the guy came through it. Um, he had to relearn how to play. I had to relearn how to play uh, because I had brain damage. And when I got out of the hospital, I'd been in bed. I'd been there for eight months in the hospital bed. Um, I had brain damage. I had to relearn how to speak and walk. And when I got home, I couldn't play the guitar anymore. So I had to start over from scratch. And I did. And I worked on it six, seven hours a day for a year. And when it was time to see if I could get on stage and play a gig, I made my return to the stage at Royal Albert Hall. And, um, I mean, there is a story in there. And in the preceding, um, it's going to be six years, May the 26th 
It'll be six years. In those six years, with this album, I will have released five albums in six years since I came back. And I've had my own band now for 31 years, and I've done 29 albums. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I like creating. That's that's some record, really. I mean, that is, uh, you're really going for that medal at 30, aren't you? It's, uh, well, no, and I, it was two medals for 60, so you've got to start start working on that, man. Yeah. Well, albums. I also I learned a work ethic from John Mayall. And that man has a work ethic like nobody I've ever seen. Um, one tour we did with him, I'm trying to, now we did 78 cities in 65 days. So think about that one. That's where on a Saturday afternoon, you play at a festival at two in the afternoon and then you pack up the gear and you drive a hundred miles and play at a club at midnight right? And uh, 78 cities in 65 days. So that man has a work ethic like nobody else I know. He truly loves what he does. And I have tried to, I, I believe in that work ethic. Uh, Lee Woodhams sent in a question and he wants to know, I mean, out of all the people who went through the Blues Breakers, obviously there's a lot of musicians there. Uh, were there any guys that you think, God, I would have liked to work with him? You know, I mean, there's always the, the, the three famous guitar players, the Eric Clapton, Mick Taylor, and Peter Green. And I've done a lot of work now with Mick Taylor. Um, I love Eric Clapton's playing, and I it, respect him so much. But I, I think my own self, I think Peter Green was probably the greatest British blues bluser. Um, that's just my own humble opinion, though. You know, I have my own opinions. I think Steve Marriott was the greatest British rocker, but yeah. that's just me. I, and I don't want to argue about it. It's just my own opinion, right? And, but I think Peter Green, some of the stuff he did was, was just the greatest British blues stuff. And um, he was a big influence on me. I, I don't try to play like him because I can't, um, but as far as guys that went through the blues breakers um he he's one that i i'm in awe of what he did hmm. so i want you to think about this uh, this is our, this is our killer question and it's uh it's it's the end of the world there's uh it's, it's easy to imagine now right <laughs> so especially yeah there's a there's a big going politically but over here yeah, yeah especially <laughs> <laughs> there's a imagine this there's a big meteorite on the way uh it's coming from space and it's gonna hit in like three days or something and uh the world president uh, said to you he said walter we need to have this big party to go out with we want you to put the band together who's gonna be in your band and what song are you gonna play <laughs> oh man you know, I, I got to tell you what I would probably do. And this, again, is just me. I would probably call up the Rolling Stones and say, why don't you go out there and play Start Me Up and let me sit in with you guys? <laughs> you know, that would probably be it. I'm a mega fan of those guys. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, and right? That's a yeah. band that if, if I ever got to jam with them, I, you could kill me at the end. I, okay, I've lived my life now. But um, that'd probably be it for me. I think those guys sound better now than they did 40 years ago, you know. But that, again, this is all just me. You put something like this up on Facebook and then you get all this people want to argue this and argue that. And I'm like, hey, it's just my opinion. It, it, it ain't worth a shit. You can have your own opinion too, you know. But I, that's probably what I'd do, uh, you know, get up on stage with Keith Richard and go, hey, man. Well, after the meteor hits, you're going to be the only one left. You know? <laughs> yeah, you want to stay close to Keith, eh? You just, uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's such a great answer, Walter. I, I love that. Fantastic. Fantastic answer. Uh, we kind of run out of time. We've come to the end of our time. So I just want to say, Walter, it's been just brilliant talking to you. Your stories are fantastic. I could sit here and listen to you all night. Um, 
Just... Well, if you ever want to do this again, man, I'm just the tip of the iceberg with some of the stories. I got some stories about John Lee Hooker and a couple about Big Mama Thornton that are uh, pretty, pretty awesome. And I got a whole lot about Mr. Mayall. They're all good, but he is a very eccentric fellow. And um, I have some great, I, I love the man, but I have some great stories. Um, he, he's a road warrior, you know. But thank you for having me on on this. This has really been fun. This has been, been great. Been fantastic. Yeah, we, we definitely have to do a part two for sure. Yeah, and then and then a part three. And yeah, it's just time, a weekly thing, right? You know, just yeah. <laughs> Anytime you want, and and I really look forward to all of this someday getting back to some semblance of normality, so that I can back get back to the UK and play for the people back there. And maybe we can go hang out and uh, I'll buy you a beer and you buy me a club soda. That sounds awesome, man. That sounds awesome. Yeah. As soon as this all gets back to normal, I want to see you back on the road doing what you do best, you know, because uh, you're one of those guys that definitely, I can see it when you're playing. You're just, you're just there for the playing. You absolutely love it, don't you? So I want to see you back up on stage. And, and thank you again for having me on here. I've really had a great time talking with you guys. I could, I could sit here for hours with you guys. So if you've enjoyed this, why not like and subscribe to the Blues Podcast right now? All right.